Hey folks, welcome to the Eat Well Podcast. I'm really excited about this episode and I think it's one that um, everybody should should listen to if you're a hunter in British Columbia, for sure, and if you're interested in wild food and, and uh, a way of life that uh, revolves around wild food. I, I'm very fortunate to have Spencer Greening as my guest. Uh, Lagod is his um, Shimshin name and uh, he'll do a better job pronouncing that uh, in that podcast and, and certainly... Uh, will provide a much more robust introduction and in this podcast you know I've been I, I got to know uh, Spencer at an event and and uh, talked about maybe having a conversation around indigenous perspectives on hunting in British Columbia and uh, kind of got into talking about just the the way of life that um, he's grown up with and uh and I think uh, we'll probably do another podcast after this to build on the foundation of, of this, what we chatted about. So anyways, um, hope everybody is uh, well and safe uh, during this time. Certainly, um, we're all living in self-isolation as we get through the COVID crisis. And uh, Spencer and I uh, met up in the cemetery across the street from my house. Uh, to record this podcast so there's a little bit of wind and uh, a few people walking by uh, but hopefully it's uh, well it, it is the conversation is well worthwhile listening to so uh, enjoy the podcast and we'll hope to get some reviews from you folks and share the podcast where you can love to reach a few more people with uh, with stories like this so enjoy This is mint tea. Perfect. I was, but I, I have a feeling that I recently, like, I've come back to coffee after being off it for a bunch of years, and I was like, kind of thinking, did I, is this gonna be like a coffee tainted thermos? It's the worst. <laughs> we'll find out. We're gonna find out. So your mint tea might just sort of taste like I'm remnants that, of man. like coffee. There's this beautiful thing that you like are forced into. In, in communities and that's being like thankful for anything like you're never allowed to say anything confrontational like foods being served to you really that's how i was like brought, being taught from my elders and like as long as i can remember you just... i i definitely need to learn that because it's definitely something that i like i'm like yeah this could be better though <laughs> yeah it's like it's just a no-go zone criticism in, of food but it's also like it's tricky because then people could go years with making a bad <laughs> a bad recipe and people not really saying anything directly so, so that's my that's like so like that's my problem it's like like I, I can't help but provide i'm like you know if you like if you see someone just like throw raw garlic into a into a soup pot or a stew i'm like Whoa, whoa, whoa! There's actually like there's a science behind like you know frying garlic right. and frying yeah. off the bitterness and you know, and uh, and it'll make it just so much better. But and and so you want to tell them that, but then all the other end you're just like you're eroding their confidence, like and just being a jerk. So, <laughs> but I mean, life is better with garlic that's been like fried properly before yeah. it goes into whatever dish. So mm. I was gonna say, um, I I I really love tea. And I had mentioned in our last visit 
I think that I don't really drink anything other than tea and water. Yeah. And uh, uh, I remember when I was younger hanging out with this this elder that he was a really cool dude. And I, he was a badass. He like always wore this like m military jacket and a bandana. He looked like he was straight out of the AM American Indian movement in the 70s. Yeah. He's just a cool elder. And uh, we were out in the bush one day and he was like, you know, this is where you bust out the hunter's drink. Uh, hunters always carry this drink. And I was expecting something like, you know, something like a big tough guy would drink. And he was Bottle like. Bottle of whiskey. Flask yeah, of whiskey, exactly. Right? Yeah. Very like masculine. And it was this tea. And I always like as associated or felt a little shamed always like being like oh i just drink tea i don't like coffee i don't like all these um because i associate it with like the queen of england or something yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when really i should have been associating it with all these other things yeah but it, it was really cool and it was just like to put this spin on tea that it was like yeah it is the hunter's drink you know it, it, it's totally connected to the land that you're like engaging with and have a relationship with and when you drink it, you smell like that land. Yeah. When, yeah, it, it's, it's just from the place that uh, you're inherently tied to. So if you're in the bush, you're going to get your your fuel from that bush. Oh, for sure. Like, yeah, I, like you reach down. I mean, there's nothing better than taking a break from a long day, building a little little fire, and then heating up some water, throw a couple rose hips in, and there you are. You're like, totally. My friend Jody, she's... um. She talks about cooking moose and she likes to like, she's from the peace country mm -hmm. and, and she's, she, she usually goes up and shoots a moose or an elk every year, but she really likes connect, like bringing other, uh, foraged, um, like herbs and plants back so she can cook the moose with the plants that are mm. the animal's home. And, mm. and she, she described it really nicely, but it's something you said for, yeah, exactly. Cause connecting and, and, uh, whether it's Labrador tea or. Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite tea from home? Um, probably Labrador tea. Labrador tea with a wild mint is just. Oh yeah. I, I would take that over anything. I think. Nice. Now, do you do you do you pick a bunch and dry it out and keep it around? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of our standard go-to, but it's interesting how different plants have different uh, characteristics based on the territory they grow in. And so if you think of the coast, it's a very acidic soil. And so that's totally gonna change how that Labrador tea plant, what it has inside it, okay. compared to let's say the interior that might have a drier soil. And so I, I hear these, uh, um, sometimes I hear conflicting teachings around uh, how and when to harvest and what to drink. and an example is in the interior, uh, uh, working with elders. Um, there was one elder in particular that I was quite close with. And um, she always talked about when harvesting medicines, you know, there's certain times it's okay, other times they have too many toxins and all this sort of stuff. For us, Labrador tea, we harvest year round. I have no idea why biologically that's okay on the coast, but in the interior, we were never allowed to harvest Labrador tea until the absolute first frost happened because the toxins were sucked out of the leaves and brought into the roots 
because that's what helped it survive over the really cold winters there. And it's such an interesting little like discrepancy that you wouldn't think if you read a Plants of British Columbia book. Yeah. You yeah, wouldn't get that. You wouldn't, you wouldn't get that. No, you know, no. the privilege of having someone share that knowledge with you. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's a tidbit about Labrador tea. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, back home, it's our go-to drink. Yeah. Among some others. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. So I should probably introduce you because that's a, so I was saying to Spencer, he walked in the door or when he pulled out, actually, I just lots of context here. Right? Should, uh, but first of all, welcome Spencer to the Eat Wild podcast. Spencer Greening, Lagoot, is that right? Lagod. Lagod. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, is, is my guest on this episode. I'm, and I, I, I got like a lot, like a long story to bring like that here, but I'm going to let um, um, Lagod introduce himself uh, before I take over and start talking for way too long. And, uh, <laughs> welcome to the Well Podcast. Welcome to the cemetery across the street from my house. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks. I'm excited. And uh, I guess for introductions, uh, Lagod is my Tsimtsian name. Uh, I, I'm from uh, the Tsimtsian people, a particular tribe of the Tsimtsian, the Gitkata or the Gitgat, Gitgat First Nation. The community is Hartley Bay, but we're a, a coastal peoples um, who I th most people know about Haida Gwaii. So I always say if you imagine the island of Haida Gwaii and like flipped it onto the uh, directly across onto mainland British Columbia, that's where you get Tsimtsian territory. And there's quite a few, well, not there's a handful of Tsimtsian villages there. Um, I have family in every village, but uh, uh, primarily identify with my community of Hartley Bay. And uh, that's on my mom's side. Uh, we're a matrilineal community, so uh, that's how I identify. Uh, on my dad's side, the family's German settler heritage, okay. so a uh, family of mixed background. But uh, I never knew my uh, family, my grandparents, or anyone on my father's side. So from a young age, uh, all I knew were my Tsimtsian grandparents uh, when it came to that, those older generations and the culture and that sort of stuff. Um, that's who I am. I guess to, to bring this into why maybe my voice might be a little relevant to the conversation uh, as opposed to any, I don't know, you could choose any indigenous person and I assume they would have um, thoughts and feelings on this topic, but I am and We don't even have a topic yet. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in the context of the Eat Wild podcast, I'm an avid harvester. I happen to be doing my PhD in indigenous resource management, uh, stewardship, rights and title, philosophy, history, all the sort of context of that with my own people, but also some education in what that looks like in a Canadian context. And uh, so that's who I am and some of the work that I do. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here. And, and uh, so I have, um, I have a podcast complex. Like I listen to other people's podcasts and I'm like, oh my God, like Stephen Rennell is so great at doing podcasts. Why should I ever even try and do a podcast? Cause he's just so excellent at it and the quality of guests. And I, uh, I actually did a, 
a podcast uh, a few episodes back where I was hanging out with um, a couple of my, I, I manage parks for a living. And uh, we got together uh, with a couple of my park ranger pals that um, one of my good friends, he works at, in Bella Coola and has done a lot of work with Heltzik First Nation and up and down the coast. And like, has been very much like his whole perspective of park management has been very integrated with the indigenous perspectives of protected area management or land management. And he's done a really, some really good work that has been like, has, I see him as a mentor for how to work with indigenous communities that I work with um, here in the lower mainland. And, and um, anyway, so I, uh, we did this podcast uh, and it was basically three, you know, non BC indigenous dudes talking about, uh, you know, perspectives on where sort of um, uh, how we can do a better job as a hunting community in, in trying to understand uh, Indigenous governance and our responsibility to, say, consult with First Nations and kind of acknowledge that a little bit of the history and kind of a foundation or just a starting point for a discussion, right? And And somebody heard that and they're like, oh, man, Good start, like good effort there. Pat on the back, effort. Uh, but you've got to listen to this podcast with uh, um, with the Spencer Greening guy, and it was on uh, the April Vokey podcast. And of course, I went and listened to that. I'm like, oh my god, that guy is like amazing. I mean, like he clearly is well spoken and kind of walks the walks April through like a lot of stuff around the histories and kind of the why, kind of why we are where we are today as we are you know, very complicated, challenging times, um, for, well, gosh, it's, uh, anyways, so I was like, Hey, well, that's cool. Like I, I, again, my complex, my podcast complex kicked in there and then, uh, maybe you want to walk us through where we met, how that happened. Yeah. I, so as a part of doing my PhD, I was in Vancouver, uh, for a, a year of doing coursework at the university here. And uh, at one point I had sort of stumbled across uh, the BC backcountry hunters and anglers sort of organization group. And there was an event uh, that had a, a speaker. And I'd, at first I, I heard Dylan do the territorial acknowledgement. And I thought that's really neat that this, that started this conversation this event and uh, perhaps the people in bc backcountry hunters and anglers would be interested in uh, this sort of conversation around indigenous rights and title what does it mean to be a non-indigenous hunter in bc hunting on traditional territories where do the morals and values meet up or clash or this whole conversation that i'm really interested in but i never got to talk to dylan but I ended up talking to Jenny of Chasing Food Club. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we just chatted a bit over media. And then it ended up turning into uh, me meeting up and making it to another event uh, with the, the live podcast that was done recently. Oh, okay. Uh, where I finally got to meet you and uh, exchanged pleasantries. And uh, Jenny said, this is Spencer from, he's the guy who did the podcast with April. Uh, yeah. And, and, and then. That was pretty fun. And then we said, yeah, okay. 
we should probably have a, a conversation at some point. And here we are. So for context, um, we're sitting in, uh, so we are, I think, one week into social isolation here in Vancouver uh, during the COVID crisis. Uh, so we're in, in my park management life. I'm, I'm working to, you know, basically manage the public access to parks, which is kind of a bummer because I'm closing parks to people. So I'm, I'm really acknowledging that, you know, we have to, we really do need to socially isolate in order to, for our best chance of reducing the pressure on our healthcare system. So, um, Spencer and I had a plan to get together for, for weeks now, but of course there was a bit of a bump in the road cause you were traveling in, in, uh, in Japan. Yeah. And you came back and you came back right in the middle of this. Yeah. And upon coming back, I had symptoms and had to get tested before the government was saying, don't get tested unless you're truly in danger. Um, so I was one of the few young people who have been tested and it, under quarantine in Vancouver uh, before traveling anywhere for the last 14 days. And uh, I just found out that I, 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 I don't have it, and I can uh, sort of socially isolate like most yeah. people in Vancouver are doing right now. So, so for us, we're, we've 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 agreed that we're going to do. We've agreed we want to hang out, and we've got lots to talk about. So we're we've stepped across the street to the cemetery, which is this beautiful green space. It's relatively quiet, and uh, we can maintain an appropriate social distance as we have our conversation, share our cup of tea, and. Uh, and I'm I'm good. I'm, this is great for me because I know you don't have the COVID. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm the only one at risk here. <laughs> yeah, <don't worry. laughs> yeah, I've been. Uh, it's it's been scary times because I, I don't actually want. I was I was thinking about this. I was like, I really don't want to talk about COVID because everybody's here at COVID, right? I mean, yeah. and uh, but I mean, it has really changed things, and um, I really appreciate you coming over because I I am you know. I, a very social person and I, I posted a, a post the other day I was like hey until like further notice I'm canceling all dinner parties I'm not able to like um, do the things that I do I love to have people around and I love to cook for people that's like kind of what I do and kind of fills me up and, and having to put that on hold so mm -hmm. I appreciate you coming and hanging out with me in the park and drinking tea because uh, it, it'll fill me up a bit good yeah yeah, so. yeah me too I've been in isolation <laughs> <laughs> Or quarantine for 14 days. Well, easy win for both of us. Yeah. 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 I, I was, um, so after that, we did this, that, that how, uh, why it's hunting so hard podcast. And I, I opened with sort of, uh, I opened the, the event with an acknowledgement and, and I kind of, I really struggled with it. I really stumbled over it. Not only still, I, it's, you know, it's a, it's hard to like, you look out at the crowd and there's some people that are nodding their heads like, yeah, I totally get this. Thank you for mm -hmm. acknowledging, you know, and, and before you host an event and there's other people that are just like staring at you, like they're a deer in a headlight and they just have no idea where you're coming from or where you're going or why you're doing it. And, and, and you want to give enough information as to the, as to the why, because I think we hear a lot of acknowledgements, like we should probably do one right now. So we acknowledge that we are on the, Traditional territories. No, your turn. Who are we? Who's who traditional territories are we on? The Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and 
Squamish. Squamish. I'm not from here, Dylan. You're putting me on the spot. I do that man. with all of my classes. I, I go, I, I say to people, I say, does anybody Squamish. know whose spiritual territory we're on? And, uh, and, I, and I have them come with me on our acknowledgement, right? That's great. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I just butchered it. <laughs> no, you did great. Yeah. I could say, uh, but I think, we, I mean, it's important that, that, I think it's important, particularly when we're talking about hunting, right? Because I think it's such a, I mean, you know, if anything, we can we can say, and I think people can understand the loss of the way of life that Indigenous communities have experienced, particularly here yeah. in the Lower Mainland. Like, there's there's no way there's no elk here anymore. Like, this is a this is now a graveyard, and you know, this was a place where people harvested and maintained a way of life, and it's just that's just no longer replicable. Yeah. And and I think that's one thing we can do, and then kind of acknowledge that as we talk about it. So I was trying to give the background and kind of like give a little bit more information, but I stumbled over. I felt really uncomfortable. And I was like, and I was kind of like amongst these other peers of podcasters who I was like, didn't want to sound like an idiot and, um, or not well-spoken. Maybe that's not mm-hmm. the word. So it was super cool. When you came up to me after we were heading after for the after party, which was, we had, uh, reservations at a tapas place just across the street. And, um, yeah, Spencer's like, Hey man, like I really, you, you came in and you kind of said, Hey, like, that was cool. Thanks for doing that, and that 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 made me feel good. That, that, yeah, that, and it turned out to be the Spencer guy who I had a bit of a yeah podcast crush on. So like, so yeah, thanks for doing that. <laughs> yeah, I, it struck me. Um, I remember once I was doing some sort of lecture at the school, and uh, I just started by saying, sometimes I just think out loud, and it can get me in trouble, and sometimes it's good. But in this case, I was like, I, I hate these territorial acknowledgements sometimes because they're so empty. Yeah. And when you, you see politicians do it, it's this weird, uncomfortable truth that they're Canadian politicians the st- represent the state of Canada are openly saying, this is not our territory. Yeah. When they do a territorial acknowledgement and then they, all their actions say otherwise. Yeah. And so <laughs> I remember I, this one lecture in particular where I did that I said but that doesn't mean to say these things are bad it's how they're done that's bad and I really appreciate your appreciated yours because I feel like it's important for people to recognize um, not only this whole political piece there's like a bunch of history and politics that needs to be understood and recognized by mainstream society but as hunters and and, and anglers, outdoors people, what is particularly interesting is the fact that these territories, these ecosystems that we're acknowledging, they breathe, they give knowledge, they give life. And the life that they have given created these beautiful cultures, the ones that I just sort of butchered in listing listing them um the Slaywatooth, the musqueam and the squamish down here which again is not my territory but they gave birth to these beautiful cultures those cultures which gave insight on how to live how to manage how to be in human and non-human relationship with this place yeah and we have truly lost touch with our recognition um in some way to the land uh, the land isn't making, in, in mainstream society, the land isn't breathing life uh, uh, or, uh, yeah, breathing life or giving us 
direct insight into most of our, our laws or the decisions we make in mainstream culture. I mean, we come from a British parliamentary system. We have all these laws that are rooted in some religion, some whatever, right? Uh, that was not the case for the people who lived here. Mm -hmm. It was this land that gave them their laws. It was this land that gave them their language. And that's the beauty of like recognizing territory. Yeah. That these ecosystems give culture and life and laws. That's really cool. And your introduction just a few more words beyond let's just acknowledge the territory made me think of that. It, it, it's more than just saying, oh, this is someone else's land or there's conflict about land. If you take it a step further outside the political, it's that there's some interesting, deep-seated human relationship with this land that our mainstream society is missing out on. And as hunters, anglers, people who see themselves as uh, managing a resource, whether you're indigenous or not, there's something to pay attention to. Yeah, there's common ground there. Yeah. And there's yeah, an awareness of it. And if we just take one step closer and try to understand that, I think we have a lot more empathy as to what is happening for, as, as a sort of this, I don't want to call it a reawakening, but as a, there's, there's definitely momentum to understand Indigenous culture, Indigenous governance, that I don't know was, there's, we're building momentum and we're building understanding as a society and and uh building some empathy like there's a lot of cool things that are happening and mm -hmm. and, and i think that hunters in particular could be have have, <laughs> have the most potential to be in conflict but also have the most potential to have a have a collective understanding and actually be a partner in moving forward in a in a, in a positive way and i it's kind of actually not so we're already like way down the road here, but yeah. uh, so the, I had a, I, I've got some concept. I, so I think what I wanted, I had a couple of questions I wanted to ask you as we get into this. So um, a broader perspective of what I want to accomplish is just, you know, obviously just you're, 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 I want this podcast to be about interesting people that I come across that want to talk about wild food and, and uh, you're certainly that kind of person. So I was like very pleased that, you, so that that's, that's, that's all I want to accomplish here in this podcast. But within that, I want to ask you, like, you know, given the opportunity to have a conversation with me and maybe this gets maybe, you know, a few hundred people from the hunting community listen to this, hopefully a few more. Um, what are, what, what's a question that you want to talk about? What's something that you want to, what you're comfortable sharing or comfortable talking about in general terms or where, where we get out of this conversation? I mean, I... I'm really interested in your questions because I, I feel like you are much more in tune with the mainstream hunting community than I am. And so it's hard for me to understand what that community might be interested in knowing. Okay. So I'm purely interested in yours. As an aside, I, um, I, 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 I just like talking about hunting too. <laughs> And the morals and the values, you know, the philosophical dilemmas we face as, as hunters, as people who have a relationship to land. I'm also, uh, when I speak, it's hard for me sometimes to talk about these issues because uh, it's hard not to generalize. Both all of my research and my background in academia or this sort of professional world i'm doing the finger quotations yeah. around professional uh all my background has been research with my own people but i was sort of trained in a broad understanding of 
in university of indigenous politics, politics history, that sort of stuff. So it's hard to not generalize, but there are similarities across the board in some of these topics. But at large, my research has all been with my people. And so I, I just, I find comfort in the ability to say, this is how it is with my people. And this probably resonates with a lot of indigenous people. It, it might resonate with non-indigenous people. And, um, you know, here are examples and things, but you know, just general conversations around hunting. I just love <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And eating. I'm always thinking about food and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I mean, that's pretty, I mean, that, and, and so I was thinking about that, like, I mean, I, 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 that's, it's, it's funny where I was trying to, you know, trying to clear my head before you came over and really take a step back and think about what we could talk about. And, and I think the, um, I, I didn't want, actually, I, you went right there and it's, it's kind of under, you know, talking a little bit about the non, the, well, the indigenous perspective, the indigenous hunter's perspective on non-indigenous hunters. What does that yeah. look like? And then, and then almost flipping that around and having a conversation around that. Um, but I think just because we both love talking about and, and hunting, hunting, can can you walk me through your seasons of before we get into like political stuff or challenges stuff? Let's just talk about something fun that we both love talking about. Mm -hmm. And it, it, are you comfortable talking about your seasons of eating wild? Sure. Yeah, that's my pitch for my show that we're gonna. Cool. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's a great start. Yeah, uh, and what a perfect time right now. Because in particular, it's it's kind of like the new year in, in yeah. the Tsumsian world. Uh, I'd like to preface by it's interesting when we talk about our, our like harvesting seasons. Yeah. I have never once bought a tag. Yeah. And so okay. to put that into perspective, it's and we can talk about that later. What are the laws and what yeah. are these things around harvesting that yeah. differ? But for me, this is just what an entire community or nation naturally follows. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and under our own law, as well as Canadian law, we have the rights to do that. So right now in our world, uh, it's the time of the Ulikin. And so do people know about, how many, how many hunters and anglers in BC do you think know about Ulikin? I think that it's such a, it, it was such a part of the, uh, settler economy when it, I mean, the, the, the oil was a yeah. huge part of industry. I think there's a, a recognition of, of, it, of it from that perspective. I don't know if there's necessarily an understanding of the value to indigenous okay. communities and the, the looking grease trail and that type of thing. Like, I think there's probably a little bit we can touch on there for sure. And, and the values to a community. So, uh, right now it's kind of at the end of a long winter, this beautiful, amazing fish shows up coming through broken parts of the ices of our of the ice of our rivers and it, it's the biggest blessing and it's usually right around the beginning of march and uh when i'm lucky the peak is right around my birthday march 14th yeah. and so i associate big feeds of ulikin with my birthday okay unfortunately this year i was quarantined in vancouver so i missed it <laughs> did somebody send you a little jar of ulikin oil no but apparently i have some waiting for me in prince rupert which I can't wait to get to. I did eat ulikin today, though, cool. um, in a friend's freezer. But uh, this fish shows up, and our word for it is, uh, we have a couple different words. But one of them is hatli mor, which is 
our word for the Savior. And it, uh, it, it's given that name because after a year's supply has dwindled throughout the winter, it's the thing that saves everyone, not just humans. Yeah, okay. Every bit of life on, on the northwest coast explodes with energy when the Ulikins show up, and they are the savior of our ecosystem. And so the Ulikins show up, and you got, I mean, the obvious things that show up behind it are the fish that eat it, but the, the pinnipeds, the seal, the sea lions, the birds, and you go to a river when the Ulikin are there, and it's just mayhem of everyone harvesting, going bananas over this human, non-human, and the richness it brings to the ecosystem when you know it's digested and comes out of all the animals that brings nutrients it's just this it's like a mini people know about the salmon and what they do yeah what salmon do for forests um ulican are like that but they have this amazing oil content around them as well yeah and so after a long harsh winter for people you get this kick of oil, like pure fish oil. Yeah. And people called them candlefish. You can Google candlefish mm -hmm. because they were so oily you could light it you on light fire. Light on fire, yeah. And so that's, that's like the new year for us. That, that's the, the beginnings of spring. Things come to life and it, it, it puts your, your, your coming year of harvesting into motion. And so amongst that... Uh, there's also the herring start to show up yeah. and so with herring there's the roe the roe on kelp some people used to smoke um preserve herring but the big thing was the 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 roe on kelp or or the roe on branches yeah. and the herring is another species that uh, though they don't go up the rivers like ulican they are this uh species that bring a ton of life to the to the th the beings in the salt water, the yeah. people in the when I say people in the salt water, it's like uh, all the species in the salt water. Sure, um, I, I've never got to see it where the, the whole water becomes milky. Yeah, um, I, I would love to see it. Unfortunately, in our territory, there's not. Is there not a spawn? There is, but it's um, it's not regular. It would happen, you know, every once in a while. And so we rely on a lot of trade or family ties to get that. I mean, the big places south of Hartley Bay, you got Kittisoo and then Bella Bella. Yeah. And those are huge, um, amazing, beautiful. Yeah, herring spawns. Yeah. yeah. And then north of there, the northern Tsimtsian people yeah. uh, have a, a good amount of spawn as well. Yeah. Sort of the mouth of the Nass area. Uh, and, and so that's kind of the next thing on the plate yeah and i i uh had a friend from uh helped uh, helped yeah first nation that came down with uh, uh a bag of, of roe to a dinner party and and we like spread it out on on bread and it was really good well actually it took up I, I think i actually just talked about this in my last recording i did with uh and one of one of my elders one of my good friends larry who's been around for 82 years and he talked about you know seeing the herring spawn as a kid um and where he grew up in, in Comox and Courtney. Um, but my friend Dan, yeah, brought down this, yeah, from, from the community of uh, 
Celtic, and it's one, one, yeah, it was it was cool, man. But you could definitely feel the power in it, man. It's like mm-hmm. it, it's definitely full of life for sure. So, unfortunately, I have become allergic to herring roe in the last couple of years, and it really? breaks my heart. Are you allergic to anything else along with that? No, it's just some weird allergy that showed up. I, yeah. Have you tried playing with it a little bit? Totally. Yeah. I was in denial for... I, I've accepted it for two years. Okay. I I was in denial for probably a couple of years before that where I just deal with it. But every once in a while, people get these allergies and it's... I'm always interested prior to contact and prior to industrialization what their diets would have looked like. Because I have cousins um, who, not like me, they're full-blooded Tsimtsien. They're allergic to shellfish. Yeah. What, How would they have survived? And it's a big question. Maybe it, it has to do with the, you know, the, our, our, the, the, the gut biome and how it's been affected by modern food, yeah. industrialized food. Maybe that's it. But I, I assume allergies existed. And so that's it. It's probably <laughs> shellfish. I mean, it would have been a real bummer to be. Yeah, <laughs> to be to live on the coast. Yeah, and, yeah, be like, okay, sorry, guys. <laughs> I digress. Yeah. Um, that's April. Uh, coming into April, you know, we say we get herring weather on the ocean. Have you heard of herring weather? Uh, no, no. It's it's when the, the snow, it'll snow and then it'll show uh, sun and then the snow comes back. And it, it's just a, a wild... Uh, uh, a bipolar season. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, um, yeah, there's beautiful stories of what that's for. Um, maybe that's like another conversation, but on some level, snow pushes feed down Yeah, for the herring. And it's like the sky and the universe giving gifts to the herring because they give so many, uh, gifts to everything, uh, every species in, uh, you know, in our ecosystem. And so that, that weather is a gift for them Okay. because they, it, it brings all their food. The snow lands on top of the water and it pushes feed and things down. And, and so it, it gives the opportunity for the herring to, oh, okay. to like feast in their own way. Yeah. We love talking about feasting on the coast with potlatches and that sort of stuff. And herring feast too. They deserve a feast too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. After that, we, uh, we roll into May, and uh, uh, it's a, a wonderful time because the herring weather sort of slows down and just becomes more sunny, usually. Yeah. And uh, the beginning of May, at least for us in our territory, but all, all up and down the coast, the spring, generally, you start getting seaweed. So you're harvesting seaweeds, a uh, big time of year for halibut. Yeah. A lot of halibut har- harvesting, preserving that. Um, shellfish like chitons, uh, abalone, uh, I, I mean, anything that's edible year round. But what's interesting is often those uh, batches where they're really plentiful coincide with a lot of the places where we get our seaweed. Okay. So there's some ecosystem dynamic there where there's complementary uh, species going on. Uh, Tequoyets is what we call it. Urchins. Okay. Sea urchins. Yeah, yeah, yeah urchins. Yeah. Um, sea cucumbers, any of that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah, always close with abalone, you know? Yeah. Urchins, abalone, kelp. And then there's the 
I think they're the laver seaweeds, that um, specific ones that we harvest. And then after the, as we do that, and you know, that's kind of May into June, then we get into egg harvesting. So there's different bird eggs that we would harvest. Oh, okay, yeah, of course. Uh, uh, yeah, sort of going into summer, yeah. in June, throughout June. Um, bear. So we okay, would, that was going to ask it. Is yeah. does Shimshin hunt bear? Yeah, and it's interesting because some coastal peoples are explicit. We don't hunt it. Yeah, okay. Due to oral histories or spiritual belief, for numerous reasons. But we're, I mean, as long as I've listened to the elders, it's like they've all loved bear. We yeah. growing up, we they used to love to salt bear in yeah. barrels, um, but it was harvested uh, um, in the fall as well. If they're there, I mean, you get them in the spring too. Yeah. Uh, you see them going for kelp sometimes, or the yeah. roe sometimes, and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Going for shellfish, and so you can opportunistically get them. Yeah, I had I had uh, reached out to um, some friends from the Huet First Nation in you know, Banfield, or sort of planning. I was alluding to it, but trying to, I was trying to put together this project to do like four, four seasons of eating wild, and we're going to mm. film these these foraging adventures and, and then the food that comes with it. Maybe a little less focus on the killing of the animal, a little bit more focus on the, like the, the adventure and the, the, the logistics that goes into putting together this type of hunt. And then, then, then the following feast with, yeah. you know, um, so, so in part of doing that, uh, I, I reached out to, uh, well, a couple reasons. I, I kind of wanted to try and do it in a way that where I was actually like reaching out to the nation saying, Hey, I'm going to come into your territory, and I'm going to. I'd like to, I'd like to come into the territory, and hunt and gather wild food, and and do a film about it, and tell a story in a in a way that's appropriate, and and see if I could get that support going into it, and see what that would be like, and and um, and in this case, I'm kind of lucky because I have have some f- old friendships from this nation. But the question I had was like, you know, this is something that you know the way it have done, and they did they hunt bear. And, mm. and it was an interesting conversation because uh, there was, it's a little, they have hunted bear in the past, but they haven't, you know, they're, you know, the connections they had, they hadn't hunted bear for a long time, but mm. there's an interest in kind of exploring that a little bit. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. So kind of cool. But yeah, but I got the, got the lowdown that it's not, a number of nations, just, it's just not part of. Yeah. So, yeah. I wonder if it's a little bit like, uh, oh, we're being visited here by a dog. Hello, dog. Hey, social distancing dog. <laughs> um, I wonder. Okay, a little bit. Is it? Have you have you eaten a lot of bear? Yeah. Do you do you? Okay, if you if you could reach into your freezer, and you had a, you had like, bear, deer, and we'll say goat. Which, and, and you want to have steak night. Which which would which would be the thing you reach for first? Bear, deer, or goat? Yeah. It depends who I'm having dinner with. No, it's just for you. It's just it's, me. This okay. is you. Like this is you. You have your bachelor night. You're gonna like. You you have like you have steak oh, night man. ready to go. Man, depends on my mood. I I, <laughs> I I'll give a reason for each one. Um, if I want it rare, I'm gonna go for deer. Yeah. I just love rare deer, yeah. like blue rare. Yeah. Um, if 
if I want something that tastes like this delicious fatty like meatball or something, yeah, I uh, I would go for bear because I associate it with this deliciously uh, like juicy and, and 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 fatty meat, yeah, because the fat's so delicious with it, yeah, and and I um, I like leaving that fat on at times. Sometimes you render it. Uh, and then with goat, I mean, goat's my favorite animal. Yeah. I, <laughs> uh, so if I want to be uh, just in seventh heaven daydreaming about goats and goat hunting, and if I want <laughs> yeah, spiritual yeah. power because they are very spiritually significant to us, yeah, I would go for the goat. Um, so I'm sorry, it's not a black and it's white not answer. A, okay, I was going down the road of like, because I have had this... I'm really trying to work towards, you know, maybe killing a bear this year. I've never killed a bear. I, oh, I, really? I, I, I've always had a connection with bears as a result of the the work I do as a park ranger. I've always yeah. like managed problem bears in campsites and such, and kind of got to know them. And I kind of have a lot of I mean, they're awesome. Yeah. When you observe them, they're beautiful and cool and interesting characters. And so that to to go and shoot one, and I I, I just never got my head around it because I've always sort of felt like as I. I've been blessed with always having an abundance of food in my freezer. Mm -hmm. And so like, I've never felt compelled to shoot a bear because if I have elk or whitetail or mule deer or halibut, salmon, I, like, I feel like I've, I don't need to hunt a bear. So that's what my question actually was. I was just kind of curious. Like if you live in a world of abundance, right. Would, would there be like less of a, you know, and I would say that, you know, I would certainly assume that, a number of the nations, coastal nations, lived in a, in in, in abundance. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, I see. Yeah, that's a really good question. Is, is it is it a, is it is it just because it's not as because of it's maybe slightly dangerous because it's maybe slightly or maybe just not as as good to eat as some of these other things that are you know in abundance. And I don't know. That was just my thought. That's my that's my yeah, experience. I, gotcha. I live in abundance, so bear has not been a priority in right. addition to the fact that I have a connection to it. Um, no, I mean, just off the top of my head, uh, if there were was a hierarchy of meats, uh, of red meat on the coast, bear would be up there. I, I mean, every year the elders start hinting at me, oh, I'm really craving bear. <laughs> Wish someone would go shoot a bear. And it's, you know, it, it, it's definitely not there. Oh, I guess we have to. Yeah. And one of the reasons is it's just fat. Like, yeah. our people love fat. Yeah. Something I forgot to mention for May, June is hunting seal. We can talk about oh, that yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, but animals, uh, ungulates have a particular kind of fat. And then bear have their own unique fat. Yeah. And uh, that that is just a medicine. It's calories. It's... Uh, it, it's all kinds of things. and And so... Uh, aside from being delicious yeah and so that that's one of the reasons why bear meat is just up there it's unique in it and if you're in a diet of eating uh i mean there is abundance but at times you're going uh for a month where you, you might be eating something the same let's say during salmon harvesting season yeah you might be eating salmon over and over and over and, and and eating bear would be quite refreshing and delicious. Oh yeah, a high fat content red meat. 
Yeah. Well, that's right. what's kind of got Jenny P. My honey partner. She made. We went rafting the other day. We we're socially isolating in our in our uh, blow up kayaks, and uh, and we went and we had a picnic after, and she made uh, bear burgers, mm-hmm. and like. She's been trying to get me switched on to bear for a while, because like, she, she's she's been an avid bear hunter for a number of years, and she really wants me to kind of get into it. I, I just have not got there yet. And that, man, that bear burger, I was like, because it it has that fat content mm-hmm. that is so good, and you just, I'm just so used to like, yeah, just having. You have to be so careful with how you cook things when you're cooking with lean meat, and yeah. you have limited options. But like, fatty bear burger, man, that's pretty good. Totally, <laughs> as long as you can get. Uh, be aware of that trigonosis. Uh, oh man, that if you're not going for a rare meat, I, I would to go back to your question. I said if it's rare deer, yeah, yeah. but if I wasn't going with uh, a rare meat, I would pick a bear any day of the week. Yeah, yeah, totally. No, that's cool. It's oh. actually the first animal I ever killed was a bear. Okay, yeah, cool. I want to ask you what that was like, but I wonder about how we we're already at like forty-seven minutes. I'm wow. like, like, where do we, where do we, and we're we're fighting a little bit here. Like the wind here is is has picked up. So let's just pause it here. We'll see if we can do a little bit to uh, try adjusting the mic. See if we can tuck them into our stand fields and see if it is better. But here, let's pause for a sec. All right, so we've had to relocate from our cemetery, and now we're sitting in my front yard, um, and of course uh, we'll have uh, my neighbors walking by. And trucks driving up and down. I got a great big speed bump right in front of my house, which is great because it really slows people down. But I love it when the people just completely don't see it or acknowledge it. They just like slam over top of that. So we'll hear that a few times. <laughs> and then we'll get some interesting looks from the neighbors. But it's not unusual. Like I kind of, uh, I often will cut fish in the front yard. I'll uh-huh. come back from a fishing trip and it's just so much easier. Like, I'll have a cooler of, uh, uh, you know, those big giant white coolers. And I usually, after a good trip, they'll have two full coolers, mm-hmm. and, and then whoever was on in the boat would will have like a they'll have a like a fish filleting party, and it would like fillet all the fish and then and then freeze it, and backpack it, freeze it. But easiest system is like park the truck there, and then like pull one fish out of the coo- out of the cooler out of the ice, walk it five steps across the sidewalk into my front yard onto a plastic table, yeah, totally, and, and then fillet it, and then and then the the pieces go into the house, into the backpacker, and then into the freezer, just like. Way simpler than I've tried doing it in my backyard. It's just this is just way easier to do it this way, and uh, but then you get these people walking by. They're like, they got this is like you know seventy pound halibut <laughs> on the deck, or like a bunch of ling, funny looking lingot. Yeah, people give you a funny. Well, what's interesting is that some people were like, will engage and like, how interesting. Like, what are you doing? And yeah. and and that seems like a normal normal neighborly thing to do. Mm-hmm. And then there'll be other people who just like kind of like see it out of the corner of their eye, then pretend they don't see it, just like walk right by it. Like, <laughs> interesting. Walk faster. Yeah, it? just an interesting social experiment that people like. It's just yeah, it's just uh, so dis- <laughs> we're just disconnected, I guess, mm. sometimes. But anyways, uh, we were talking about. Uh, um, we, well, we're at we're at fifty one minutes, so we were we kind of in our break that we were kind of reevaluating what we were going to accomplish in this conversation. A little bit, and and I think maybe we could. Well, I think we're on a good track. I like I like this kind of working through the the four seasons of, yeah. of eating wild. I think we should try and get to the end of it because I'm, I'm enjoying the conversation. And and then once we get through that, we'll evaluate if we want to move on to some of the uh, you know larger questions that we started this concept with. But um, but yeah, okay. So we're 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 kind of coming up to we've gone through halibut season. Yeah, and so 
I had mentioned that I skipped over seal, which is silly of me because that's one of my favorite things to do during halibut time is to go get a seal or several and there's, uh, you're making grease, you're smoking it, you're, I mean, nowadays we're, we're canning it, we jar it, eat it, have a big feast. Um, seal is one thing we can get year round though, but uh, it's, it's a good time right now. Yeah. Um, they start to have their pups in June. Okay. Or after sort of our, our seaweed halibut season. Yeah, yeah. And so it's a good time to get them right before. Um, uh, th- they'd still have some good fat content. You know, the oolican were there. They oh, yeah they, yeah, they yeah. chowed down on the oolican, yeah. and so they're maximizing their, yep. turning all that into fat. And... Just before that trip to Japan, we went out and got one yeah. in the winter, which is great for oil yeah for rendering but there's almost like more fat than meat yeah and so uh, uh more yeah. fat than meat as well yeah. yeah so so you actually when we when you visited last time uh you brought over a package of seal meat yeah which i still don't i don't know i've i'm excited to do something with it uh, i should we should have had well yeah see this if we were having a proper dinner party we'd have seal so with uh under normal circumstances i would hope that you'd come over and do a podcast and then we'd have a dinner party with interesting characters and yeah. eat seal and other wild things. But we're, It's okay. There's plenty of time to yeah, do that. We're on COVID lockdown. Yeah. Now, so different scenario. So after this, you know, this season, also around this time, the spring salmon are showing up, right? Of course. Yeah. So, I mean, there's halibut, ground fish, all these other things going on that you can yeah, fish for. Uh, but spring salmon start to sh- show up. So harvesting spring salmon where you can, when you can, but that sort of instigates the the whole salmon season, which is its own deal. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's the deal for the coast, right? Oh, sure, yeah. There's all these this abundance of protein, but the salmon are. So is the spring are, salmon the the salmon go to or? Is, I know in other communities, it's it's here in the Fraser, it's a sockeye that's yeah. so quintessential to the Katesy and and Squamish and others. You know, it's, uh, so I have this like bone to pick with the industrialization of salmon. Okay, I don't totally buy. Okay, I'll step back. There are differentiations between the salmon in different cultures. I've heard many different things. Certain there's sometimes there's hierarchies. Yeah, certain salmon have stories of how they've come. Okay, why they hold the position they are, why they're bigger, why they're fattier—all these things. Of course, Um, there's oral histories behind that. Um, I've actually heard more of that from other places. Sometimes I've never heard the hierarchy thing in our own, but there's also this taste hierarchy that I don't buy into. Okay, and I feel like so much of that has come from the industrialization of fish. So in our neck of the woods, everyone loves sockeye. Yeah. But everyone loves sockeye because for so many generations, at least the last easily 100 years, but 100 and yeah. whatever years where it was industrialized on our coast, uh, that was what everyone was getting. And in their spare time, when they weren't commercial fishing, they would have time to prepare it uh, for themselves for the yeah. winter and the fall. And so that just became the standard fish and taste buds change. Mm. Uh, as you go in into the summer, you get all the different kinds of salmon. Uh, 
spring, sockeye, chum, coho, pink salmon. Yeah. And then steelhead. Uh, but uh, I think, I feel that, you know, we got, we harvested all of them. And our people knew the best ways to prepare each of them. Yes. And that preparation complemented the uniqueness of that fish. Yeah. An example of that, the crows are getting hungry as I talk about this. Yeah, they're here you're talking about the salmon. <laughs> yeah. An example of that is people turn their noses at pink salmon. Yeah. Humpies. Yeah. And it breaks my heart when I see people like chuck them overboard. Yeah. Uh, and in our neck of the woods, chum too sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but when I talk to my elders of, uh, of, of their absolute favorite salmon meal, every, almost every elder I've ever asked, it was a pink salmon. Oh yeah. And it was a particular way that that pink salmon was cooked. Okay. How, how do you, can you tell me how to cook it? It's, uh, so when you get, you have to get them at a certain stage, Yeah. but then you, you would slice it and then make what we would call, um, there's, there's different kinds of dried or smoked fish, Yeah. but you could get like the dried kind or half smoked or something. Yeah. You take layers off to do that. And then you're left with, uh, essentially, uh, the, the skin Yeah. after you've taken. I'll back up because this is probably a hard picture to imagine for our listeners. You get a whole fish, you gut it. Yeah. And then uh, if you were to look at it with its belly up, its backbone would be on the table. You can slice along the backbone so it like folds invertedly. So the skin, yeah, butterfly. And you can cut the meat out along the ribs. So you would get a laid out skin with just a tiny bit of meat at the bottom once yeah. you've taken all the layers of oh, like okay. jerky or dried fish off yeah and you get this skin with uh, uh I, I don't know what you it would be it would be like a quarter centimeter of meat up oh. to a centimeter depends how families different families do it differently but you uh, do three different stages of smoking okay. and it becomes very hard and uh in the winter you, you would save that for the winter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you'd be hard up and you'd want something to just lift your spirits. And in the winter, you take that, you put it in a cedar basket, you bring it down to the water and you soak it and it gets this salty like inflation. Yeah, okay. And then you roast it. Okay. And it's this crispy... So you reconstitute it in salt water. Yeah. That's and it's cool. this crispy, delicious, like fish scorched skin cracker with a bit of meat on it <laughs> and the elders always ask for that and always want it but no one does it not as many people do it anymore because the industrialization of of salmon have made the newer generation or a lot of families me included yeah primarily harvesting sockeye yeah and so that's a little uh, an aside <laughs> yeah, uh, an aside yeah. rant but the uh, stepping back it's all these salmon show up in the summer yeah. and there's neat ways to to prepare in each of them. Yeah. Each of them have their own uh, uniqueness that is valued in different ways and um, different ways of preparing them, smoking them, drying them based on, you know, yeah. what their qualities are. I love a smoked humpy. 
Uh, one of my fishing partners is a wonderful job of smoking humpy, and it's like he brings it on our fishing trips, or sorry, our hunting our hunting trips. And I always like I eye it up in the I'll see it says smoked humpy on the mm-hmm. package. I'm like, oh, okay, I look, I look forward when he brings that. It's <laughs> always good, very good. Um, the other thing, yeah, I, I, humpies are a lot of fun to catch too. Like they, yeah. they uh, there's an incredible fishery at least down here, and I'm sure it's the same up in your territory. But if you're into fly fishing, you can you can you can catch them on the fly and along the lo- along the beaches. And uh, and just a wonderful thing to go, yeah, space out on the beach and wander around and look for humpies surfacing and then just yeah, go after them with a the fly. It's a real mm. wonderful thing you can do. So uh, one of my favorite fisheries for sure. You got to even, I find like fresh is best. If you can get them into a frying pan that night or poach them that night, they're wonderful. Our, our guys would say in the middle of winter, Oh yeah, yeah <laughs> just back on my story. Yeah, yeah. Saving that for the middle of the winter. <laughs> That's yeah. when salmon tastes the best. Yeah, okay. because you haven't had it for a little yeah, while, yeah, and you're just thinking, "Damn, I would love a salmon <laughs> right now." Good, right now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I agree, man. Yeah, like wonderful. fresh, fresh salmon in any context. Yeah, right over the fire or fried or boiled mm. or whatever. Yeah, is it's great. Yeah, healthy. Mm. All right, so where are we going next? We I forgot a couple other things. Okay. I mean, the list goes, it can go on and on. Yeah, yeah. Because once you get into, like, plants, we have this thing we call miubum get. It's like rice of the people. Okay. And it's this bulbous rice that almost looks like quinoa. Okay. We harvest that in the spring, too, along with, um, uh, we call it skin, the pitch and the cambium, inner cambium of trees. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, vegetables like that, nettles, nettle comes up in the springtime. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm seeing the, some posts now for some of my foraging friends that are yeah. fired up about nettles coming on. And yeah. Once you get into the plants, it's a, another bag. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's stick to the, let's stick to the proteins for now. Okay. So yeah. We can, yeah. So, I mean, the summer primarily it's, it's salmon. Yeah. Uh, I mean, trout. Here and there, yeah. But you can trout year round. Sort when of. do you start getting excited about going hunting? Oh man, I, That's a dumb well, question. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> year round for sure. I'm probably the most fanatical uh, February okay. because I haven't had my fix. Okay. And I'm yeah. just itching. Yeah. Uh, to go because it's in the winter and I'm just, what do I do? Uh, once the spring hits, you're occupied with these other things. Uh, but when I really start to feel that, like, let me try to, exp- <sighs> so whenever I, when the seasons change, I, I get a crazy craving for the animal that's yeah. coming okay. up. Okay. Yeah. I buy that. And, and I think as humans, there's this, this thing in our system where we just know what's happening. Yeah. And the more you pay attention to it, the louder that becomes. Yeah. And uh, I, 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 yeah, it, it depends what's coming up. But I really feel hunting towards the end of August. Yeah. And I think I think of mountain goats because I again they're like my favorite. I love mountain goats. Um, but yeah, just thinking of red meat and wanting red meat. Uh, yeah, and and cruising into the fall from August. Yeah. We're starting to think about. Um, uh, all that red meat protein there's um, that moment in the summer where like for it's just like it's 
the weather is hot and it's hot and it's hot and you get into August and it's hot and it's hot and all of a sudden one day it just gets cold in the evening yeah and I just and I, as soon as that first like coolness mm-hmm. hits sometime in mid August sometime late August yeah. it's just like it's a switch for me I'm like all right it's time to go the smell <laughs> yeah you can yeah, smell yeah, the you difference can smell it, yeah. yeah which is interesting because um I've experienced that and I've heard it a lot. Um, I've just experienced it, I think, out of luck or something. But I've heard a lot from my elders that they smell the fish when they show up, yeah. the yeah. salmon. Yeah. And you go to a place, I've talked to other harvesters too, where you, you smell uh, uh, the spring salmon or something. You know they're, they're down there. Yeah. Or huh. the sockeye. Or, um, that happens with hunting too. Yeah. Where you can just... Time yeah. Go. Yeah. So as we go into uh, the proteins for the fall, I mean, salmon are still going. Oh, yeah. Right until October. But October, I mean, November, it, we have this, uh, this, this word for a particular rain that shows up in November called yoik's moats. And it's called to wash rotten. And what it does is it, it kind of signals the end of fishing. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a particular rain that comes from a particular direction and rains in a particular way. That makes it unique to just your average fall rain. But Yoik's moats shows up and it washes all the carcasses down. And it's oh, time okay. for like any water people. Yeah. Um, at the mouths of the rivers and that as it comes out to the ocean to start to feed yeah, okay. on the fall bounty. Okay. And that signals like it's done for us. Yeah. Sparking the end of the season for, yeah. uh, for fishing. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, in the fall, it's just, you know, for us, goats, deer, bear, moose. We got moose. That's in, interesting. Yeah. yeah on the coastal moose. Parts. Yeah. So with goats, do you hunt goats early season, or do you, I, I understand that they come down those mountains a little bit towards the end of the season with the snowpack? Yeah, I've. Um, so part of my research is f- focused on goats because, like I said, I'm just obsessed goat, goat with crazy, them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the there's kind of. From what I gather, there were two main goat seasons. Okay. Uh, the main one was kind of around September. And it was enough time to get fat because goat fat is so valued. Okay. It's, uh, it's a, a, a force of like spiritual energy and a significance. And it was considered a, a, a delicacy. Our people talk about uh, potlatches or feasts where if you were such a, a big um, a chief, you were so wealthy that you could give uh, a feast or a potlatch of just one of the meals was just pure goat fat. Okay. So dipping your hands in, oh, in like wow. rendered fat and eating it yeah. because it was such a hard, it was, it was, it's just a tough hunt, right? Yeah. So in order to have enough fat to feed a lot of people, you need a lot of goats. Yeah. Um, I, ideally, you would get enough fur to make the, the Chilkat blanket, the regalia. 
Okay. But also a lot of that came from just hiking and picking up sh uh, hair when the goats were shedding. Yeah. But there's also a season sort of around April when you start to get, or sorry, sort of around March when you start to get ready for the Ulican. Okay. And that was kind of just a one-off. spring, early spring. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and then we, they would be down. They would be down far. They'd be, yeah. they would have, a, uh, I mean, they would be skinnier than in the fall because uh, you could get a goat in in the fall and it would have a nice amount of fat, but they're just kind of weathered through from the winter, right? Yeah. But it's also a, a good time to uh, get, uh, uh, you know, red meat protein in that way. So those were kind of the, the two main seasons, but primarily for me, I focus on the September one. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's a beautiful yeah. time of year to be out in the mountains. Yeah. There's also this, uh, this berry that coincides with, it's a particular mountain berry we call mihet that is super valued and you only get it at that time in the mountains. Okay. And so they kind of coincide. So you could be picking berries and goat hunting at the same time. I, I love that. I, I, that's a, a constant distraction in the fall is like mushrooming and yeah. hunting because I always like, I find myself getting excited about what I'm stepping over instead of looking out for sign of mm -hmm. ungulates coming and going. I'm busy yeah, picking mushrooms and getting excited for them. And then I got a handful of mushrooms and a deer steps out. And I'm all... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's cool. I, I, I was also surprised that um, uh, there's these, there's moose. And I, I, so Hartley Bay is coastal. And, and, yeah. And, uh, and I, I'm just surprised that, I mean, in my mind, moose are sort of, you know, interior, you know, plateau species. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. I, uh, there are recent... Uh, development in the area. Okay, so traditionally or, or pre like, pre contact, was there a record of uh, moose being part of the Shimshin diet? No, elk though. If yeah, okay. And and so um, it's interesting because our uh, our word for elk once the elk left. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure exactly what year. Yeah. Um, uh, moose at some time kind of replaced them in that role. Yeah. And so our word for elk just became our word for moose. Yeah. And so they took on a, a similar, the hides are valuable or and, and that sort of thing. Elk hides were really Oh, important I see. Okay, of course. At that time. And, yeah. and if we couldn't get them on the coast, we would rely on sort of the babines up the Skeena River. Yeah. Uh, those areas for a good elk trade. Yeah. Yeah, how far how far um, in the Shimshin territory does it all drain to the ocean, or is there do you cross the height of the coastal height of land where it drains back into I guess the plateau? Yeah, it's all on a lot. Well, a good chunk of it um, is uh, if you're going inland, it's all along the Skeena for the okay. most part. Yeah, um, except I mean for Hartley Bay. And Clem 2, which is half Tsimshian, we got these coastal patches where we do have, um, for us, you know, rivers that are on the mainland, connected to the mainland, uh, south of the Skeena. Yeah. And so that's just another piece in, uh, that is kind of outside the standard Skeena Tsimshian territory. And then you have all the outside islands that, yeah. Uh, yeah, are 
not mainland at all, and uh, wouldn't have had moose. But recently, we have whale re re uh, researchers on some of our outer islands, and they have pictures of a moose swimming from island to island, big bull. No kidding, eh? Uh, and like a thousand feet of water of ocean underneath them wow. <laughs> going yeah. from island, island to island, island on the outside yeah just go yeah i wonder what i wonder what he's after i wonder what the moose is loving a speculation is wolves like wolves oh oh yeah get, get yeah yeah for sure i and uh i wonder what i mean they they do love you know they they, they, live, they do love aquatic plants i mean I, I there's no reason why they wouldn't do really well yeah. in an estuary on the coast and yeah be interesting i mean the elk elk love the, the estuaries and we would love elk but interesting so so what happens in the winter uh shellfish is uh oh, okay the big deal um i mean ducks and geese too okay yeah through the fall but into sort of early winter it's a big deal okay uh but yeah shellfish is is the main thing um that you would get into so clams cockles uh, mussels crab like, is there a, um, how do you preserve clams? Like, or is it just a, like, a daily menu? You can smoke them. Okay. Like a smoke dry. Okay. Yeah. You got to be careful of uh, red tide and all that. Yeah. And that's why we have our tides where we know where it's safe. Yeah. But yeah, you can um, uh, smoke clams in particular. I've never had, we do smoked cockles, but I've never had a smoked dried cockle. Yeah, um, for uh, cockles are probably foreign to a lot of people too because they're not industrially. Yeah, they're no, they're not industrially available. And... Yeah, you can Google cockles for any of the listeners that are interested. They're um, commercially available in England, I think. Oh yeah, okay. And it... they're quite small, but okay. ours would be like the size if you held your your thumb and your pointer finger in a horseshoe shape. Oh really? They would take up that much space and probably be. Um, an inch in diameter of thickness, maybe, or something. Oh, my goodness. Okay, I had no idea that cockles could get that big. Yeah. I've uh, had chitons before. And... Yeah, and chitons, it, I'm, I'm not sure why we don't get them very much in the winter. Maybe on a hard year you might, because, again, year-round you can get uh, a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, urchins, too. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, in particular, I mean, cockles and, and clams. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, in the that time of year, mussels a lot of that. Yeah, mussels for the winter. Oh, yeah, and there's probably some that I'm just it's forgetting. Quite, it's like a bounty, man. It's like yeah, it's a lot real. of harvesting. Yeah, it's, it's it's amazing to be a part of an, uh, a community, a culture, and an ecosystem that you know that's that's how we live. Yeah, we're, we're born to do that. So what? What, what a great uh, place to be in when you love hunting and yes. harvesting. <laughs> yes. well, so, so this is it. So from um, and maybe like you know we'll probably have to progress towards you know some type of a, a uh, of a closure to this conversation. But maybe where we can go to is is like like I'm a, I'm a I'm a resident hunter in British Columbia. Mm -hmm. um, I have a Métis heritage from from uh, the prairies, and uh, but really, like I, you know, I grew up in Vancouver, and I have benefited from having a family that has hunted and 
and gathered and, and mm. fished and, and some of that tradition and, and way of life comes from my grandfather who's Cree and, and well Métis and then but much of it comes from from my you know my Irish grandfather who was a sportsman and, and grew up hunting in, in BC and such so but my very much my way of life parallels the conversation we just had like I I'm excited as you're telling me about the the, the seasons of eating wild because I that's you know, I get excited when it comes into the springtime. I'm, I'm thinking about, well, like prawns and halibut and, you know, the things that I'm, that I, I got, well, oysters. I love, I go out like early, like the, just the tail end of winter when the oysters are still, the, the tides are still good and you can get, go get, you know, shell, shellfish. And we have an invasive population of oysters here. So it's great. You can really you know, have a wonderful oyster feast. And, um, but I'm very much thinking already I'm, thinking about my salmon season which is the mm -hmm. spring for me and then of course then we get into fall so it's very very like i i you know it's i think it's important to well for, for me like i i there is some parallels in terms of like i have a way of life that is not necessarily indigenous to British columbia but it so values the the life the life that your, your way of life and where you're from and how you live your life and i um I think that there's a, a lot of people like me that don't necessarily associate, like, um, even maybe don't even call it a way of life. They, they might hunt and they might fish, but it, I, I think that we sometimes get stuck in a, in a hunting community or fishing community calling it a sport or mm -hmm. calling it, like, I think it just diminishes yeah. what it's all about so much. And, and I think if we step back from calling it a pastime or a sport or a, you know, it, it's, and actually like kind of identify with us as human beings harvesting for a way of life, then I think there's such a, I mean, and I really appreciate you sharing your life story and your way of life. And like, that's just like, it just seems so, so it adds so much depth to the, to the concepts of hunting or yeah. discussion, you know, and I, I don't know, I think we need to be having that conversation more clearly with not just from hunter to hunter, mm -hmm. fisher to fisher, whether you're an indigenous hunter, fisher, or a, or a BC, what we call a BC resident hunter. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the telling that story to the average person who is part of, makes up the, the, the residents, the residents of British Columbia to... Well, what do you think the benefit of more people understanding, like, the way of life? Where, where is that going to take us? I, so there's a few interesting things at play here. Uh, I want to recognize, yeah, that use of the term of it being a sport is weird. And I think sometimes it's applicable and sometimes it isn't. And I think there is a rep like hunters represent when it's applicable and when it isn't as well. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. there are truly hunters that just see it as a sport and live it as a sport. And there are hunters who that doesn't describe their relationship with hunting at all. Yeah. And so it's interesting because very rarely would you find an indigenous community or someone who's avid about harvesting 
in any way would their harvest look like a sport. You can probably generalize that pretty well. Yeah, through modernization and these sorts of things that would come in and out once in a while. But as a general rule, that connection of it being a way of life as opposed to a sport would be so rare to find in an indigenous community. Yeah. Where I, I, I wouldn't, I'm going to, just for the sake of simplicity, let's say 50-50 of non-indigenous hunters see it as like a sport. You know, I want that trophy. Yeah. I really pay attention to that. I don't really, some people, I don't even eat the meat. I just want, you know, yeah. that's, you hear those stories of people like that. And then the other 50-50 are like, I don't care about that. I just want to have a relationship with um, the ecosystem and, yeah. and live off of that and have that. Uh, so there's that, you know, unique complexity to the categorization of non-Indigenous hunters as, yeah, a sport, a heritage, oh, a way heritage, of life. That one kills me. And that one's weird too, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like a hunting heritage. I mean, to me, when I think of heritage, I think of kind of what I described earlier, where this ecosystem has created your language, your spirituality, like your political institution, yeah. your governance. That's when it becomes a heritage. Um, but you could debate these terms all day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact is, there's this weird difference going on, and uh, I, I don't, I don't know if it's our place to define these differences right now. But I think it's totally beneficial to bring that up and have a conversation about um, uh, where Indigenous people might fit into that, and non-Indigenous people might fit into that, and what m hunters these days might. Uh, how they might want to change that. Yeah. In my view, back to after, you know, a roundabout get to your question. Yeah. Why does, why is this good? Why does it matter? I have this fundamental belief that when humans have more in-depth relationships with their ecosystem that they live on, yeah. they are healthier, uh, smarter uh, societies. Yeah. And so I, that's what I care about. I care about humans being uh, in a better place as a societal whole. Yeah. And I have another core belief that indigenous people have been on their territories for so long because they have such in-depth relationships with the ecosystems that the maturity of their society when it comes to law, morals, values, political systems has been developed in such a long, mature way mm -hmm. that it is it, it often there's so many superior ways of being as a society represented in the indigenous world as to what we see in colonial Canada today. Yeah. As if we were to go back and to live in these traditional societies, I would. It's my belief that our people would are, are just have a much healthier, um, uh, cognizant way of being than what modern western colonial canada represents largely because of a lack of connection to land and ecosystems yeah i i don't disagree that <laughs> and i mean that's but that's what i mean and i think that's where like i i kind of always go for common ground and like and like what makes me a better person what makes me passionate about life and is is my connection to ecosystems throughout bc yeah. Like I don't have a home ecosystem the same way that you, you have having been connected with your traditional territory. I kind of see like places in BC have become that for me and have helped inform my uh, understanding of, of life. And, and, uh, and I think have just 
created who I am and, and, and given me my direction in life, whether it's my, my time spent at Pachina Bay in the Huet Territory and connecting with you know the ecosystem there. And I go back there every year. I can't be without that place. And I mm-hmm. have a place in the interior, which is very similar, where has brought so much to me just being a part of that ecosystem. And I, you know, I, I, we, we talk about every year, we talk about maybe going hunting somewhere else because the hunting's been so poor, um, where we hunt in, 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 in the Kettle Valley. And, but like, we don't leave because it's our place. Like we've, it has become our place that we, like I've learned so much there and I will continue to be there. And, and, and with that, I mean, and is that, you know, I have an under, I, I've, you know, I talk about the changes in the ecosystem there and, and I, I want to fight for that ecosystem mm-hmm. because that's important to me. And it's, so I'm, you know, networked in with my community of, you know, land managers and saying, what you know, what's happening here and asking those questions and seeing if there's a better way of, you know, maybe putting the brakes on some logging, like how do we yeah. do that? And, and so that, so, I mean, I, I, I kind of like that when you get that deeper connection, it changes how you behave. Yeah, totally. So, but not probably as, yeah, I see how, I, I really like how you bring forward like that, the ecosystem creates everything yeah. and that is heritage and, and it's not just how you live your life, but it's your politics, it's your spirituality, yeah. it's your art, it's your, how you prepare your food. It's like yeah. how you treat people with respect and mm-hmm. like, yeah, I know, I dig that. I dig that a lot. Thanks for sharing that. How much longer you want to go on here for? I can go on a long time. I, <laughs> what we say in our language, you call me a scab. <laughs> someone who can talk all day, talk all the time. I think what we should do is, I think we should, I think we should stop here because we've got over an hour of, 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 of stories and, and, and uh, I think it's a great introduction to you and, and what, and, and, and who you are. And I think that, we have a much more challenging conversation that we need to have because yeah. I think that I, I think that the one thing, and we'll pre- preface this for when we talk again, is that that you know the land, the political landscape, the the not even the political, the lands, the governance over land is in question in British Columbia. Mm. Who has the right, and who has a responsibility, and who will be managing land going forward and if that that's happening right now mm-hmm. and uh i think we and i would like to if as a hunter i can imagine that resident hunters would feel very vulnerable right now with what that means totally so i'd like to have that conversation with someone who brings so much knowledge to that conversation mm-hmm. and I think it's a cool one we can have and hopefully we can. So for next time, yeah, we're going to have a challenging conversation. And I would love to preface it with a few sort of thoughts on what we talked about. Let's go. Like on some level, I'm, (laughs) I feel like there's so much unsaid about how to harvest those animals, those species, those things, those people, those beings that Mm -hmm. we talked about when it comes to ritual, protocol, oh, yeah. um, morals, values, um, let alone the preparation. and it, it, There's so many layers to that. Um, but to jump into sort of this political side of it, 
uh, which is the conversation I expected to have today. Yeah. But clearly, I'm, I can just talk and talk. <laughs> it, yeah, we need several hours. Um, hopefully, the listeners have gathered that each of those species I talked about, there was, there is, and was management practices in place. It's not just like this free for all. And so as you look forward to that next conversation, think of all those species that I listed and understand that just like how the province of British Columbia's regulations, we have legal, moral, uh, spiritual regulations on our harvest of those. Yeah. And I really like the point you bring up of vulnerability because it's, it's such a complex tension between Indigenous and non-Indigenous hunters. Mm -hmm. And I've gone so long with the assumption that like, Oh, so many hunters are just racist. Yeah, they're straight up racist. But I'm I, I I've had to move through that simple uh, way of thinking. It, it's an ignorant way of thinking on my end, and it ha I can tell the story maybe in the next time when I I move through that and what helped me move through that. But uh, the end result was understanding it wasn't. Sometimes it is racism. We have oh, to. Yeah, I, I see it. It's profound. It drives me crazy. Like it's it. And, and I think they don't even, people don't even know how racist they're being when they totally like it's it's, it's, it's such a lear, there's so much learning that has to happen or unlearning yeah <laughs> like, like but aside from that it 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 boils down to vulnerability and fear mm -hmm. and that's when ideas of racism come out that's when like this fight or flight comes out and we got to make an enemy out of someone. Mm -hmm. And that's the easiest way to dissipate this conversation, make it black and white. Mm -hmm. And that's not where this is going. And it's not where it's going legally. No. And so I'm glad you brought that up because I want for the next conversation, again, thinking of the fact that all those things I listed, we have management protocols around that, yeah. laws and protocols. We have legitimate legal protocols on those yeah. in our culture. I think there's this fear that if we get power to manage, uh, non-Indigenous people lose everything. And I really believe that as a society, there, it would never happen that Indigenous people would get management over resources, man, uh, ownership of land or title of land, yeah. uh, all you know these terms we might hear. Um, let's just say stewardship and that non-indigenous people would never be a part of that mm -hmm. system. What I truly believe is that will come out in the future is a recognition that those management protocols are probably superior in a lot of ways and that non-indigenous people will start seeing that in regulations and they'll have to start adapting because there's no way in this society in Canada and British Columbia you can just pretend that non-Indigenous people don't exist or like, you know, send them back to wherever they came from sort of mentality. That doesn't go anywhere. No. But what does go anywhere is how do we challenge uh, the shortcomings of what we see today in the hunting world or in the management world. Yeah. And the shortcomings is uh, 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 Canadian laws, management systems that have failed where indigenous systems have not failed and they've been successful for millennia. Yeah. And you so, can look back on populations 
Yeah. You look at salmon populations pre-contact to now, you know, uh, different wildlife populations for sure. I mean, the, the abundance, yeah. you know, I mean, that that may be an oversimplification of of the reality, but our, our management practices, you know, could need, need totally. to be better. I mean, we're not, we're, in, in, in my sort of optimistic lens, like, we need to work together to manage for abundance yeah. so that we can all maintain a way of life. And totally, and protect the species and the places that they that they live and they rely on, and and that to me is the, our way forward. Yeah, and we can spend a bunch of time like, like you know, being fearful and being scared and 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 worrying and, and moving towards conflict, and yeah, that's not going to get us to abundance. That's the that we need to to see indigenous. Hunters and non-indigenous hunters have the same end goal, which is abundance and a way of life. Totally. Like, so if you got the same end goal, like, how can we not, yeah, you know, work together? And I mean, the racism that comes out is this assumption that indigenous ways of hunting are, you know, just lawless, and 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 don't have that vision. That's the assumption I see. Yeah, where there's very little recognition. No, we have the same goal. We want there to be wild game for us to survive. Yeah, another. Yeah, everyone's on that yeah. same page. Yeah. And so, this is totally about moving that conversation forward because the other one of saying this person's the bad guy or this group is the bad guy. Yeah, that that othering is uh, just simply ignorant, lazy, and useless. Well, it's uninformed. And, and yeah, yeah, it's uninformed, and and it and all it does is cause conflict. And we just, we just, we're not, yeah. we're not moving forward and we're not, we're missing opportunities here. Yeah. And while we're missing the opportunity, the forests are getting nucleated. The, the, you know, our peace country is getting, you know, back, it's, it's getting mowed down for oil and gas. I mean, we, we are losing it as yeah. we can't move forward totally. together. So, okay. Well, I think this is awesome. And we're now we're getting fired up. So, yeah. So, so we, we'll save this energy for the next conversation. <laughs> but this is where we got to get it to. So I think this we'll, we'll wrap it up here. But next time we're going to talk, we're going to talk about the perspective of indigenous hunters, the perspective of the, uh, the indigenous hunters, perspective of uh, resident hunter, and and the and vice versa. And we'll talk about some of those what, assumptions. And uh, and I think we need to talk about the foundation, the foundations of of you know indigenous land management and and then you can share some of your 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 knowledge and uh, that'd, that'd be awesome and then um i think it's also we touch on like the what like why we're here and how we got here and we can maybe do a quick discussion on the the, the delgamuth and other case yeah, law that's totally kind of there's a history like there's a reason why we're having yeah. these conversations it's not just because like it's 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 the law that we have to have figure out our way forward and i think that's something that people don't understand is that this is the law like yeah there's there's we got to work together to figure yeah. it out so this has been awesome so i'd shake your hand or something but you know we're, we're still practicing our covid separation here of, yeah. of over six feet and I, I appreciate the audience that you know yeah go we didn't talk about covid in that i mean there is a bunch of uh devastating outcomes from this oh yeah. but there's a parallel making humans set a slow down and think about their relationship with food and what fuels them yeah that could have been a whole nother oh, podcast man. I, I like my phone um, it has not stopped buzzing people looking for well I, 
I get about three texts a day, people looking for the PAL course, the, the firearms course, oh, yeah. which is concerning. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, like, but I think there's, I mean, I think that there's going to be, a, I mean, I think it's already happened. Like there's been an awakening as to, yeah. you know, where our food comes from and being more, you know, connected and being <laughs> more self-reliant on where our food comes from. I think that's, after this, that that is going to be front and center everybody's mind. Like, but. I've got a generator up back and four freezers. I'm good. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. 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 I got to plant. So I got to start some seeds here though. Cause I think mm-hmm. they might, you know, having some kale kick in here in a couple of months might be nice, but yeah. But, no, this has been wonderful. So I think I'm looking forward to our next conversation. It might be a while cause we are, you know, two weeks into our, you know, self-isolation here in Vancouver. And I think that you're, you're moving up to back home to, Prince Rupert, I guess, then you go right back into self-isolation there. You're saying yeah. like two weeks. You know what we could do? Let's do this. Let's have our next conversation while you're sitting in self-isolation. I'm sitting here and we'll do it on the, we'll do it uh, remotely on the phone. Yeah. Okay. There we go. We have got something <laughs> we to do. time to kill. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, hopefully, the, I mean, it's always nice to be in person and especially to, to establish a connection. Yeah. And uh, maybe we can carry the conversation on over, over, uh, digital media or, yeah yeah over the phone or however we do that i'll figure it out that's my next goal here to my podcast journey so how do people find you uh i'm not very active on social media but i i am once every, you know i'm on there but i am uh, generally instagram okay is a, is a good place and what's your handle uh lagod uh sg See, I can't. Even, I, I had to think and remember what it was. <laughs> I don't pay enough. But yeah, I'm on that one the most. Um, or uh, so l a g o o t dot s g, and you could type in Spencer Greening, and I'm sure it would come up. But I think when it comes to this sort of conversation, I try to engage with it on Instagram. Okay. And uh, there's some articles and previous stuff on there that I've I've written or whatever. Yeah, and you did an article. People can find it on uh, April Vokey's. Uh, Just recently. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a, an article, and I think it's entitled How Indigenous Ways of Harvesting Can Create More Abundance for Everyone. There we go, eh? We're thinking the same thing, eh? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so that somewhere on Instagram world with Anchored Outdoors and my own, it's there. Um, and then also, I mean, if you're into academia, there's stuff coming out and my name's on a couple of publications on indigenous knowledge, traditional knowledge, and ecosystem sustainability, that sort of stuff. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the, on the Eat Well podcast. I feel very fortunate to have uh, a real podcast star hang out with me. And, uh... <laughs> I, well, that's flattering. I can't wait for the next episode. Uh, I mean, this was tame. I can't wait to get fired up. Yeah, really. Okay. Well, good. maybe it's good that we're remote. <laughs> Anyways, everybody, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thanks for putting up with uh, the wind and the people walking by and the neighbors saying hello um, and basketballs being, you know, but it's a unique time. And, and I think maybe that this podcast kind of captures a bit of that uniqueness. And um, I do hope that you uh, take the time to maybe review this podcast, I think, and, and provide some comment. Uh, you know, I really want to see and share and share it with other people. So if you can do me that favor, I'll keep doing this. Uh, but I do need some reviews and I do need a little bit of people to share and, and, and then provide some feedback. So I, I look forward to that. Anyways, thank you, everybody. Talk to you soon.